Well, this morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, we come to what is perhaps the most misquoted verse in the entire Bible, especially by those outside of the church to those inside of the church. The old King James Version put it this way, judge not lest you be judged. I don't know about you, but I hear little versions of this quoted quite a bit today. I hear it when people say things like, don't judge me. Or who are you to judge and so on. And it's hard to know what to do with statements like that because, hey, it comes straight from the Bible, right? The most poignant example I I saw of this that came to my mind this week is one time I noticed on Facebook, back when I used to do Facebook, that somebody had posted just something about some new children's material that was going to be coming out. And they simply said, hey, I just want you to be aware, parents, that it's dealing with these kinds of issues. So just be careful if you don't want to expose your kids to that yet, if they're not ready for that. Well, after this person posted that, somebody else posted right underneath there, why are you being so judgmental? Why are you Christians always so judgmental? Well, what does that person mean? Was the person who posted that information actually being judgmental in the way that Jesus is talking about in the text we're going to look at this morning? Now, that's just one example among dozens. I'm sure that you are faced with this each and every day of your life, right? Now, before we address this, let me just get deep here for a second and briefly mention why I think there's so much confusion right now on this subject. It has to do with a major change that has taken place within our culture in the last 30 years or so. Are you okay if we dig down a little bit here? Within, without going into too much detail, if you're a student of history or culture or sociology, you've probably noticed that our society has moved into what has now been termed a postmodern culture. Now, even if you don't study this, you've never heard that word, you certainly feel it. We would need weeks to fully understand all the implications of the shift that this means in our culture today. But relevant for our discussion today is this. One of the hallmarks of postmodern thinking is that tolerance, have you ever heard that word? Is the most valued word and intolerance is the most heinous of crimes. Am I speaking truth right now? you watch TV? Do you follow social commentary? Are you on any sort of social media? You will run into this, right? Now, we have to understand what this word tolerance meant before the change that took place in postmodern culture. It was very different than what it means to people today. In fact, Webster's Dictionary still today defines tolerance this way. I have it up on the screen. There's two definitions, really. Number one, to allow, permit, or not interfere with. That's not the one I want to talk about or that really has to do with what we're talking about. Number two is, though, which is to recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, etc., without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing. To recognize others' beliefs without necessarily agreeing. So even 30 years ago, when somebody used the word tolerance, if you're following there on your notes, here's what it meant. Accepting of the existence of different views. I accept there is the existence of different views. Let me give you kind of a silly example. Some of you know this already. I am a coffee snob. I believe in good coffee. So if you come to me and say Folgers is good coffee, I'm going to tell you that is not true. I I can't agree with that. However, 
I will tolerate your opinion. I I believe that I allow the existence of that opinion for you to have, right? I can agree that you have the right to believe that Folgers is good coffee. However, in the last 30 years, here's what's taken place. The postmodern definition has changed to this, if you're following, accepting different views. Now, maybe you don't notice the difference right away, but it's gigantic. To accept that a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. We should be all for that, right? Every position should have the right to exist. I'm fine with you thinking that Folgers is good coffee. You're wrong, but I'm fine with that. However, we've moved to now I have to accept that that position is correct. The new tolerance suggests that to be tolerant means we must actually accept not just the existence of another person's position, but that that position is actually true. Or at least it's as true as my own position. So we have moved from allowing the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. We have gone from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all beliefs... And all claims are equally true and valid. I can't emphasize how tremendous of a shift this is. And do you see this every day of your life or what? Let's take a more serious example than coffee. Although for some of you, I just totally offended you and you want to walk out right now. But let's say you're having a conversation with one of your non-Christian friends and the question gets asked. You know you're going to get asked this question eventually, right? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And as a biblical Christian, your answer to that is yes. And you might even quote John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And your friend looks at you and says, that makes you intolerant. But does that actually make you intolerant? In the former sense of the word, intolerant, not at all. But in the new sense, any sort of exclusive truth claim is widely seen today as gross intolerance. In the first meaning of tolerance, the dictionary definition of tolerance, Christians can gladly argue that other religions have just as much a right to exist as our own, right? Other religions have just as much right to exist as our own. Now, we would think that those religions are deeply mistaken or not true, and they would think the same about us. And in the past, we could have healthy disagreement about that, about what is true and what isn't true, but allowing this equal expression of opinion. But today, today, to not accept another person's position as true is seen as intolerant. Am I speaking real life right now? Now let me bring this back to our passage today. It is, in my opinion, this change in society that has led to so much confusion for the command Jesus gives here to Christians to not judge. Because in a postmodern context, people have made judging and intolerance the same thing. The same thing. But are they? What exactly is Jesus talking about when he commands us to not judge? Well, why don't we find out together? I hope you're interested in this. Let's take our Bibles and turn it to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. And if you don't have your own Bible, we always carry some Bibles in the seats either underneath you or in front of you there. They're the black Bibles there. You can find this on page 720 in those black Bibles. Now, 
last week about talking about loving our enemies, this week talking about not judging. I mean, we're in some heavy stuff right now, aren't we? So do you mind if we, uh, before we open up this text, could we just pray and ask God to reveal himself again? Lord, we sang the words, fall fresh on us, Spirit. And we ask you again to do that. In the context of the 21st century in which we live, in this shift that has taken place in culture, teach us not just what this text means, but how we can live it for your glory. Help us be the church you've called us to be. Fall afresh on us. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, let's start by reading verse 37 out loud together on our notes, and then I'll read through verse 38. Verse 37, it says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, even though Jesus is addressing a number of different things here, I'm choosing to focus on that first sentence, do not judge lest you be judged, because this is just so in our face today. So let's talk about what judging is and what judging isn't. The key is realizing that in Scripture, the word judge can be used in two different ways. And by the way, it's used two different ways in our society still today. Sometimes judge is used in the Bible to speak of judgment between two things, differentiating discerning between two things. In fact, that's the first definition I have there on your notes there. Judgment as discernment. Discernment. We have a court system in the United States, right, where we appoint judges. What is the job of a judge? To discern what is right and wrong, right? Or how about this? Some of you might watch TV shows like The Voice or American Idol. These shows have judges, What are those judges' jobs? They are to discern who is a better singer. And they vote based on that. Are they being intolerant when they pick one over the other? No. They're being discerning. Judgment as discernment is not the kind of judgment Jesus condemns here in verse 37. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we are told as Christians that we are to practice discernment. We are to call what is right, right, and what is wrong, wrong. We discern between good and evil, righteous and unrighteous. Jesus says in Matthew 7, expose false teaching and false teachers. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, watch your doctrine closely. Jude, the whole book of Jude, we we preached on Jude several years ago. The whole book is exhorting the church to be careful when people want to come into the church and infiltrate it with false teaching. Be discerning about what is true and what is false. Even in the verses that follow this passage in Luke 6, 43 through 45 there, Jesus is talking about good fruit versus bad fruit. How can you tell somebody's really following Christ? Well, they're going to produce good fruit. Well, how do you know what good fruit is versus bad fruit? Well, you got to discern. And we, we can tell based on what God has said us, here's what good fruit looks like, and here's what bad fruit looks like. The judgment as discernment is just looking at things correctly. So in that example I gave in the very beginning about that Facebook example, was that person, the very first person, actually judging in the sense that they were accused of? Absolutely not. They were simply being discerning, right? Hey, if your kids aren't ready for this material yet, discern that. Make a, make a judgment whether or not this is right or wrong for them. 
So if we're supposed to be discerning, what is Jesus condemning here? What is he condemning here? Well, maybe the best word for it in our context and in 21st century Americans today is the word judgmentalism. Judgmentalism, if you're following. Judgmentalism is that hasty, hostile, simplistic, unmerciful, hypercritical, condemning judgment of other people without due process. To give you a picture to take around, it's when I choose to put on the judge's robe and instead of going through a due process, right, instead of discerning what is right and wrong, instead of listening to the argument, instead of listening to the case, I immediately just condemn those people as guilty. I take the role of the one, of the arbiter, between what is right and wrong. I put myself in a position above them. Now, you know in your own experience, there's a universe of difference between discerning and hypercritical. A person with a judgmental spirit revels in criticism for its own sake, right? They expect to find fault in others, and they actually enjoy it. They're pleased when some piece of juicy gossip comes up about somebody they might be envious of. They find fault in everybody, and they love pointing out those failings, maybe not to them directly, but to everybody else who will listen. It is that kind of attitude that loves to, what are are we doing when we do that? We're tearing other people down so that we can build ourselves up, right? I'm tearing somebody else's down at their expense so I can build myself up. And that creates incredible damage, not, for the, not only for the person doing that, but for the people we are doing that against. And that's what Jesus is forbidding for the Christian here. Maybe the best example of this kind of judgmentalism is found in Luke 18. Look at these verses. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, that's what we're talking about right now. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In verse 37, Jesus is calling on us as his followers not to condemn people. Not to be the ones who pass final judgment. Not to exalt ourselves above others. This is an incredibly important idea, especially in the context of which Jesus is speaking. If you've been with us throughout this series, and we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke, we've been learning that the entire faith culture of first century Israel was based on this idea that some people were more acceptable to God than others. Right? If you've been here, you've been hearing about this? The way you defined yourself, your identity, your place in the world, you did that by contrasting yourself with others. I talked about it several weeks ago. The Pharisees believed in salvation by segregation, right? I'm more holy than those people, so they would compare themselves to others. For example, at this time, Jews saw themselves as inherently better and more acceptable to God than non-Jews. In fact, they commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs, as less than human. We saw this on Easter Sunday with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, right? Not fully human, not really allowed in the kingdom of God. But they did this among themselves as well. They created certain judgments, 
Rich people were more blessed and acceptable to God than poor people. This is why the disciples are so surprised when Jesus says, it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're like, what? Our whole culture says that rich people are the blessed ones. Or healthy people were seen as more righteous than people with diseases or disabilities. They were, in fact, judged to be sinners. You remember that from Luke 5, the paralytic man? The man who was a leper, they were considered to be less than human. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus says is absolutely wrong. When we condemn someone and we say that person has no value or no worth, or at least they're less, worth less than I am, then we have crossed from discerning into judgmentalism. And that is the problem Jesus is addressing in this passage, exalting myself at the expense of another. I think Martin Luther King, who talked a lot about this in the idea of segregation, says it best when he discussed why segregation is so wrong. I put this quote up on the screen for you. He said, ultimately, segregation is morally wrong and sinful because it substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and relegates persons to the status of things. I cannot say it any better than he does there. Judgmentalism causes us to see someone else not as a person, but as a, what does he say? A thing, an it. We hear it when we say comments like, those people are all fill in the blank. Once we do that to a person or to a group of people, we have moved from discerning to condemning. And this is what Jesus forbids for the Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. We still need to discern whether a person or a group is wrong, right? We still believe in truth, in absolute truth. But when that discernment causes us to value people less, then we've crossed the line. Again, is this in our face today or what? Are there groups? Are there people with whom we disagree with theologically, socially, politically? Oh, yeah. But it is so easy, isn't it? It is so easy to cross the line from discerning what is right and wrong into judgmentalism, into valuing them less, into turning them into its or thems, us versus them. Friends, whether we like it or not, today Christians are seen as being judgmental. And it's not always without merit. Now, I want to be quick to say there's no doubt sometimes this is now the natural result of simply living in a postmodern world, right? No matter how humble we are about it, if we attempt any sort of truth claim, we're automatically perceived as intolerant now. We can't do anything about that. We can't do anything about that. In fact, Jesus said you might expect that to happen if you're going to be my disciple. However, would you agree that there are times that the world has a legitimate claim against the church? that we've turned it into an us versus them type of a thing. We've put on those judges' robes that only God should be allowed to wear. Now, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, I know, but you know, you know me, I don't mind doing that every once in a while. I watch some of these political TV shows or listen to the radio sometimes to these shows, and sometimes the hosts of these shows, whether they're liberal or conservative or whatever, they treat the other side as if they're like demons. It's thems, right? Listen, if you're a political conservative or a political liberal, that's fine. 
defend your views, disagree with others, engage in discussion on the level of ideas. Be discerning. Judge rightly. But when you begin to condemn people who disagree with your politics as being intrinsically inferior to you, you begin name-calling them. Well, then you're in dangerous territory. Not just dangerous territory, you're in sin. You have moved into judgmentalism. I realize those shows are popular, but gosh, I got to wonder what kind of, what it does to our souls to constantly expose ourselves to that kind of rhetoric. I mean, I I listen to that sometimes and, and it warps my perception of people or different groups. I feel it happen in my heart to you. I'm not immune to it. But can I just caution us as the people of Christ to be on our guard? Use our judgment, discernment, to determine whether constantly exposing myself to those kinds of things is really helping me love other people the way Christ has called me to love them. Or is it possible it's teaching me to judge them in the sense that Jesus is condemning here for us? This exclusion and condemnation and judgmentalism of others, I don't need to tell you, this fuels so much of what's so broken in our world today. And as Christians, I'll just tell you, we're receiving a lot of it back right now, aren't we? We're being judged for what we believe. But Jesus says, that's not how it's going to be with you. You're going to be different. You're never to judge. You're never to condemn. You're never to exclude. Never to see anybody without having value or dignity even the person you disagree with most, I think the key question in the next 20 years for Christians is can we disagree with people and still love them? I'm scared about the fact that I don't think the world can say yes to that anymore. I don't think the postmodern world can say yes to that anymore, right? Like I think if I don't, disagree, if I don't agree with you, I'm not loving you. And we might not be able to do anything about that, but we as Christians can do that. We can disagree with people. We can disagree with their, their, their lives, with their lifestyle, with their ideas, and we can still love them. Greg Boyd, who's a pastor and theologian, says it as well as I could say it. He says, the Christian's job is to agree with God that every person you meet was worth Jesus dying for. Amen? A merciful God has merciful children, even those we disagree with. Now, if you're anything like me, I hear a message like this, and my first reaction is this. Fine, I'll just keep to myself then. I'll just go in my shell. I'll live and let live. I'll just avoid all confrontational situations. I won't speak what I know to be true. Do you think that's what Jesus is asking of his church here? He says, be in the world, but not of the world, right? In fact, in the verses that remain, Jesus is going to speak to us, his disciples, about how we can exercise the proper kind of judgment, the discerning kind of judgment in our relationships. And i got to tell you, friends, this stuff is gold. This stuff is gold. And I'm going to give you the key right up front. It's all about how we do it, right? You knew this already. It's all about how we do it. It's all about how we do it. If you've been with us in this series, we've been looking at the life of Jesus and we've been talking about his words and his works and the way of Jesus as we seek to be more like him in our daily lives. Well, in the following verses, Jesus is going to show us the way 
we exercise discernment, especially with one another in the church. It's called accountability. It's called accountability. Let's look at the rest of these verses. Look at verse 39. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. I like those two words, fully trained, because that's what we're doing here, right? Why are you coming to church? Why are you in a life group? Why do you pray? Why do you read God's word? Because I want to be fully trained. I don't want to be a blind person leading other blind people astray. I want to be fully trained. I want to be transformed into the image of my master. And in verses 41 through 42, Jesus now gives us a master class on how we exercise proper judgment with one another. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now read the rest of it on your notes there. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now listen, I've waited to say this until now, but let's remind ourselves, who is Jesus speaking to in this little section in Luke here? Sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Who's he talking to? I'll give you a hint. He uses the word brother in those two verses three times. That's family stuff, right? He's talking to the church, how we interact with one another and speak to one another as the church. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to those outside of the church. These are words for us. How we speak to the world, how we deal with the world is an entirely different matter. In fact, I don't know why we expect people to live according to God's standards who are outside of a relationship with Christ. It's sort of like we have this expectation as Christian Americans. They're just doing what comes naturally to them. And God says, I'll be the one to judge them. I've got that. You worry about yourself and what's taking place in the body of Christ. Christ. Now, I know when we first read these verses, my natural instinct is again to say, well, I should just never do anything. That's not what Jesus says here. He says you still got to deal with some specs with some people, right? There are people in the body of Christ walking around with specs in their eye. In fact, God expects those who name the name of Christ, hey, live according to my words and hold one another accountable to do that. So that means if you see a professed believer Ignoring God's boundary, living in sin, living in error, you, as a professed believer, have an obligation to call them on it. Paul said it this way in Galatians 6.1. Can you read these words out loud with me? He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. People hear, well, I don't want to judge. We say that, right? I don't want to judge them. As if calling something wrong is wrong. Again, that's not judging. Judging is making assumptions based on appearances. Can I give you another example? If I saw your car parked out somebody's house that wasn't your house, and I made the assumption that you were having an affair, that would be judging you in the negative sense, right? And I have no right to do that. I have crossed from discerning into sin, However, if I find out for a fact that you're having an affair 
or that you tell me that you're having an affair, it is my duty as your brother in Christ to call you on that. To call you on your profession of faith in Jesus as your brother. I'm supposed to do that. The church, though, we've gotten so apologetic about this. So sheepish about this. We're so scared to stand up for these kinds of things because we don't want to be seen as judgmental. But why do you think he calls it the body of Christ? We are joined together. I can't exist without the arm and without the finger and without the eye. I need all the parts of the body to help me grow in my faith in Christ. You know this, right? Being transformed in the image of Jesus is a team sport. You can't do it on your own. You need other people to encourage you, to challenge you, and yes, to also hold you accountable to the profession of the faith you have made. Let me just give you an example here. Let's say you go home for lunch and your kid pulls out the peanut butter and the jelly and they're about to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They open up that jar of jelly and inside that jelly there's a bunch of mold and spores and other nasty things growing. Do you stand aside and go, well, I don't want to be judgmental and let them put that jelly all over their sandwich? No, of course you're not, right? You're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. There's something wrong with that jelly. In the same way, friends, if there's stuff growing in the lives of other Christians that doesn't belong there, you don't just stand idly by and go, well, who am I to judge? No, you say, hey, brother, sister, we're part of a family here. This growing in Christ, it's a team sport. And so there's some things I need to tell you about. I need to warn you about. Of course, again, the key comes down to how we do it. It's all about how we do it. And no one, as we just saw in Galatians 6, ever has the right to be anything less than humble, gracious, and loving, and merciful when we're dealing with someone else's sin. Because that is how God dealt with ours. And so our goal here is when we are called and asked to point out a speck in somebody's eyes, listen, our goal is to see them restored, not to see ourselves as superior. If we pursue that in any other way, we are what Jesus called in this passage a hypocrite. Literally in Greek, that means a play actor, right? Somebody who says one thing, but they're a totally different thing behind the mask, And Jesus says the nature of a hypocrite, look at these verses, it's a a humorous illustration, right? A hypocrite says, I want to touch your speck, but hands off mine. I want to talk about your faults, but don't you dare talk to me about mine. The best example of this in the Bible is David. You remember when David has an affair with Bathsheba? God sends the prophet Nathan to do what? To hold him accountable. To hold him accountable to that. So Nathan comes to him, and instead of taking the high horse or whatever, he comes gently, and he he tells this amazing story about this family who had this pet sheep. And this person, this rich person, comes and steals their sheep for himself and kills the sheep in order to have a meal with that sheep. And Nathan asks David, like, what do you think of that? What should happen to the person who stole the sheep? And David is enraged. That man must die. And Nathan waits and says, that's exactly what you did. You took another man's wife. But 
David was so blind to the log in his own eye that it led to this judgmental superior spirit. But in this humorous illustration, Jesus says it should be the opposite for those of us who really know what it is to be saved by grace. You know, I don't know what you picture when Jesus talks about the log in your own eye. Sometimes I used to picture a two by four in Greek. The word is much more like a telephone pole. It's like deal with the telephone poles sticking out of your eye before you go touch the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Before you ever hold somebody accountable, judge yourself rightly. Tell the truth about yourself. And really, that's the first step on how we do this. I got four steps here as we wrap up this thing called Christian accountability. Number one there, if you're following, before we judge another, we must first judge ourselves. Before you ever dream of holding someone accountable for their life, before you ever talk to them about the mold in their jelly, you got to examine your own life and tell the truth about it. See yourself rightly as someone who is in need of just as much mercy Just as much grace and just as much forgiveness as the person you are about to hold accountable. When you hear of another Christian being involved in some scandalous behavior, how do you react? With smugness, superiority, or self-righteousness? Or is your heart grieved for that person, knowing that you are just as capable of committing that sin, if not worse sins? When you are tempted to act as someone else's judge, remember what God did for you so that you could be forgiven. Remember the telephone poles he removed from your life and then extend the same grace that he extended to you to them. Second step in Christian accountability, and for me this is a big one today, is make sure it is done face to face. We live in an age of texting, email, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and I I don't know what else. It is so easy to take pot shots at people from a distance. But that is not the way of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had some strong words to say about this, in fact, and perhaps the most famous passage in the whole Bible on how we should speak to one another when we are in sin. Jesus gives this command in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother or sister sins, what? Write an anonymous email and point out their fault. No, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Don't write anonymous notes. Don't send an email. Show your face and show your heart. Jesus sets the standard. Number three, assume a posture of humility. Assume a posture of humility. Wouldn't you agree it's a lot easier to take the truth from somebody when they're not being superior, when they're actually being humble? I've shared this before. Some people have told me this is helpful. Here's a little litmus test you should take every time before you think you're called to confront somebody or to hold somebody accountable. If you're looking forward to doing it, you're not ready. You got a pole in your eye called pride. And you better deal with that pole before you go hold that person accountable. Now that doesn't mean I should avoid it. I mean, I hate this stuff, right? I hate accountability. I hate confrontation. And yet, I recognize I'm a part of the body of Christ. And so what I do is I acknowledge, here are my telephone poles. I'm not any better than you, but because I love you, I'm here. 
And then we do the fourth thing, which is speak truth and grace. Speak truth and grace. How do we truly become like Jesus? We love the way he loved. And the way Jesus did that time after time after time is he spoke truth and grace. As John reminds us in the introduction of his gospel, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know how you read that. I used to think, well, sometimes Jesus was full of truth. Sometimes he was full of grace. No, he's always, every conversation, every relationship, full of both. Again, can I use the message from uh, Easter Sunday with the woman at the well? That was like a master class of truth and grace, right? He showed this woman tremendous grace. The very fact that a Jewish rabbi would speak to a Samaritan woman is grace upon grace upon grace. He engages with her about conversations that had nothing to do with the real topic. That's grace. And yet, did he shy away from speaking the truth into her life? Did he shy away from telling her, hey, here's the stuff, the mold in your jelly that is keeping you from a living relationship with the Lord? No, he talked to her about it, but he did it in a way that was humble and gentle because he wanted to see her restored. To live this passage, to experience Christian accountability, we have to have both truth and grace. Listen, when we try to live one without the other, guess what happens? We have neither. There's no such thing as like, I'm just going to be an all grace person. Or I'm just going to be an all truth. Well, there is such a thing, actually. It's just not what Jesus is calling us to. We've been using this little um, matrix here. This might be helpful for some of you, right? High grace, low grace. If I'm all truth but no grace, I am living in what's called a call-out culture, right? Where I am disempowering others. Do you ever find yourself doing this? Like all truth, I do this a lot with my kids. I just want them to do stuff. What, do what I tell you to do. And so I call them out. I'm speaking truth into their lives sometimes without grace. I never feel good about it after. Of course, there's others of us as parents who live in a hangout culture. We never want to hold our kids accountable or we never want to, uh, you know, have any consequences for their actions. We just want to hang out with them. We want to be buddies with them. But that's disempowering them. Then there's relationships we have completely checked out. Like, I want nothing to do with that person. That's just apathy. But Jesus always and forever always lived in a call-in culture, right? He always called people in, in truth and grace. And he's asking us to do the same thing. When you look at this, where do you see yourself? The truth is, I have to take every relationship I have and put it up against this. And go, well, in that one, I have completely checked out. In that one, I'm just hanging out because I'm afraid to tell them. In this one, I'm just all truth. Friends, by very definition, if you're falling on your notes there, as Christians, we must offer love to others like God has to us. What does the word Christian mean? I am a follower of Christ. And to be a follower of Christ means I follow his way. And his way was not judgmental, but instead he spoke with truth and grace. He lived that way. In the verse just before this section, Jesus says these words. I have printed on your notes there. I know some of you put that away already. Shame on you. I'm judging you right now. Read them out loud with me. It says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. 
as we go into this world, we should, above all people, be remembering the mercy, the undeserved favor that we have been given by our Father. And we should extend that freely to others, both inside and outside of the church. Amen? As we close, uh, the choir is going to come out. And man, when I saw the song that they had prepared for us this week, I just thought, we have to close with this. I think you're going to see why. It's just a time for us to reflect and really consider uh, what we've heard today. But before we do that, let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh Lord, on behalf of your church, we want to say we're sorry. We confess corporately as the body of Christ that it is so easy for us to fall into judgmentalism, to condemn others, to take the place that is only reserved for you as judge. We repent of that. Even now as individuals, we take just a moment of reflection, of silence, and we think about some of the relationships in our lives. We want to acknowledge that we sometimes fall short of the standard you set for us here, and so we seek your forgiveness. The Lord is bringing a person, a face to your mind. Pray for them. I'm somewhat scared about what the future has for us as the church here in the U.S. as we move into this postmodern culture. Would you equip us with humility to still live for the truth, but to do that in a graceful way, in a humble way? We pray that people would know us by our love, that we wouldn't back down from what is truth or error, that we would be discerning, that we would be careful to not allow that to move us into judgmentalism and condemnation. Help us to value people the way you value people, including us. And we stand in awe and amazement right now of the fact of the one person in the world who has the right to judge. Chose not to judge us, chose not to condemn us, but instead chose to send his son for us so that we might receive what we don't deserve, your grace, your mercy, your love. How can we do anything less than extend the same thing you've extended to us, to others, both inside this church, but outside of these walls? We cannot do that in our flesh. So as we sang earlier, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Move in our lives. Do a new thing in your church, in this city, 
in this culture. We beg of you, we pray of you to send forth your power. In Jesus' name, amen.